I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land in which this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, whose sovereignty was never ceded and this area's original name was Nam. We pay respect to them and their elders past, present and emerging. Hi friends, this is Bianca and this is Annie and we are about to ask you for help. (laughs) (laughs) It's really awkward to ask for help but do you know what? It's also brave of us. Yeah. Proud of us. We've got to do it. So essentially Annie and I have been doing this podcast for a really long time now and we don't make any money off this. In fact, it costs us money to run this podcast. Yeah, we joke about it, but I think we're starting to hit a wall. (laughs) Yeah. And we're setting up a Patreon and usually this isn't something that we would do, but we are at a point now where we know that if we put in the time, we can create far better content. However, that costs time and time is money. Exactly. We used to be hosted by a radio station that used to do all the editing and stuff for us, but actually the quality of our content wasn't as good. And now we put so much more time into it and we have control over it. It's more thoughtful. We can get guests. And it also means that we don't have to host advertising that goes against our beliefs. And while we could look for sponsors for the podcast, which is something that we will eventually do, that also takes time. But also we don't want to be under contract or have to watch what we say because that kind of goes against what our whole thing is about. We like being very vocal. We like talking about what we talk about, but sometimes that might not align with a brand and we don't want to align with any brands that censor us in any way. And, you know, also with COVID-19, our comedy festival show got cancelled, which has thrown the spanner in the works Mm. for a lot of things that we had planned. A lot of opportunity has been taken away from us. So we are now appealing to our fans and our listeners we just can't afford to do this for free. And the other thing is we want to be able to pay our guests. Mm. So up until this point, we haven't paid one single person to be on the podcast. And I find that that's really embarrassing. At the end of the day, there are experiences that are outside our own that we simply can't be responsible or have a thorough enough conversation about without including minority voices. It, people deserve to be paid for their time. And at the moment, we're, we are paying it out of our pockets, which is fine. But again, that means our podcast is at a big mm. of a loss. And I just, I want to be in the position where we don't have to worry about that and we can give you quality content. At the end of the day, to be able to do this podcast, we're running at a loss at the moment. And to be honest, that's fine because it's something that we're passionate about. But we can't give the quality that we want to give and that you will probably expect from us without getting paid for it because then we have to turn our time and attention to other things that we do get paid for. So... We would really like it if you could donate to our Patreon. We've just set it up. So at this point in time, there aren't any special treatment for our Patreons, but we are working on ways that we can give you exclusive content and all of that sort of stuff. We also might be moving our little bonus apps all over to the Patreon so that we can give our Patreon subscribers some extra content. Also, we are coming up with an entirely new podcast as well. So you won't be... <laughs> I was like, oh, well, you know, we're running at a loss, but why not dig us even yeah. deeper? The thing is we... We make good content, if I do say so myself, and we have an idea for a really good new podcast and it's going to come out soon. So if you want to hear more of us, then please pay for it. (laughs) I'm at the point now that I'm just asking, give us money. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Love you.
listening to We Want to Be Better, a socially conscious, upskilling, something conscious. Hi, this is Bianca and you're listening to We Want to Be Better, an upskilling, socially conscious comedy podcast hosted by myself and... Annie Nolan. Uh, yeah, oh, okay, okay, great. I oh, see, I did it. It's yeah. like, great job. I remember my mum and dad saying to my brother, like he used to do tests, you know, at school. Yeah. And he wasn't very good at them. And they're like, oh, well, at least you got something right. Your name at the start where it says name. Uh-huh. Ha, 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 ha. I nearly got that wrong <laughs> just now. <laughs> yeah. So you're listening to We Want To Be Better. And first of all, we're going to give a content warning. Yep, straight up content warning. Today we talk about Aboriginal deaths in custody, uh, Black Lives Matter and all issues surrounding that. There are also some names mentioned of people that have uh, died. So for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, there is a cultural sensitivity warning here. Yes. Now, today we have a very special guest on the show. Yes. Mariki. Mariki Onus. Yep. So Mariki is a Gunai and Gundijamara, proud Gunai and Gundijamara woman, and uh, she's one of the co-founders of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. So if you went to the Black Lives Matter movement here in Melbourne over the past weekend, you definitely would have heard her. You might have seen her. There was a very big crowd. <laughs> there was you a might lot not of people that you might not have actually <laughs> seen her, but you would have heard her. Yeah, she was, she pretty much led the whole thing when we were there and she was amazing. She was um, incredible. She also works in the legal sector yeah. on Aboriginal women's rights. So she's an incredible woman. We're so grateful to have her on the show to talk to us. And yeah, and I think it'll be really wonderful for people that are in Australia to listen to Mariki because like I did a post about her and another person I look up to, Tarnine, who we've also had on the podcast mm. in our alcohol mini series. These are our civil rights leaders. I think mm. that I hope that Australians realise that a lot of times we look over to America and we are looking at the people leading the movement over there who are very powerful and and definitely should be listened to. But we have them here too mm-hmm. in Mariki and Tanin and I'm so grateful that Mariki has found time for us in this week. I know. The busiest week. Craziest week. And yeah. yeah, we're so grateful to have her on. We're not even going to talk too much really because we want to just get straight into it. So here's Mariki Onus talking to us about Black Lives Matter. Ricky, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Bianca. <laughs> now, Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for. First of all, actually, what I do want to say thank you for is for organising the protest rally on Saturday because both Annie and I were there, and I've been to many. A I rally. mean, look, we turn up really good crowds, don't you? <laughs> don't get us wrong, but wow, you can really turn up a yeah, crowd. It was. <laughs> I would love to take full credit, but, you know, it was on the back of an organic global movement. So there's like a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, but take credit where credit's due. Yeah. I mean, it was really good. You still spoke in front of – I just cannot get over that you spoke. This is 
some people's worst nightmare. Spoke in front of like hundreds of thousands of people. And it was so emotional. Like it's not like you were doing stand-up comedy, the light-hearted yeah. thing that we've had a crack at. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard. And actually, I don't know if you noticed, but I actually don't really do my own speech anymore because I find it really difficult to be emotionally vulnerable now as I've gotten older. So I'd really just read from the paper and just platform other people's voices. That's what we do. Yeah, it is hard. It's very hard. Well, you do have really, really good I job. would never have known that you've had any struggle because... I wouldn't either. Yeah. Because if I was, say, the police or ScoMo, I would have been very intimidated by Mariki. (laughs) (laughs) She was amazing. Anyway, let's get into it. Yeah, we're going to start off with... And and I know that this has been talked about a lot, but we wanted to start with the basics. So what is Black Lives Matter? And why not all lives matter? (laughs) I keep seeing this around. It feels offensive to be asking. (laughs) I... This isn't because I want to know. It's because we want the listeners to understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, Black Lives Matter because all lives matter, but because Black Lives don't matter, all lives don't matter. Unfortunately and sadly, we have to reinforce the idea that Black Lives Matter because so many black people are getting killed by police and the movement actually started in the U.S., it came to prominence to us and known to people globally, I think around Mike Brown's brutal murder at the mm-hmm. hands of police. He was murdered in, in the US and, and I'm not sure if that's when Black Lives Matter started. It has become noticeable to people over here that Black Lives Matter existed. Yeah, so, and it, it was a response to African-American people being murdered at the hands of police and police brutality, so... I think that slogan was coined by the black community over there. And then the all yeah. lives matter thing sort of popped up because people were like, no, I everyone matters, but it's like but yeah. the yeah. black people and don't. That's why the black lives matter thing started. Yeah, and it's really, it's really gaslighting and racist to say all lives matter because it's just erasing the experience of police brutality and it's because white people have the privilege of white privilege that they can say all lives matter without meaningfully engaging with the experience of what's going, what happened with why police brutality happens and that the fact that it does happen, like black communities across the world, but in particular African-American communities know that police brutality happens because it's so common and, of course, they say Black Lives Matter because they're seeing their family and friends and community getting killed and, of course, it's a white privilege thing to say all lives matter because you're not seeing the same kind of slaughter as us or as African-Americans in the US. But we responded to Black Lives Matter here with a solidarity protest. So it was Black Lives Matter and Stop Black Deaths in Custody. And Stop Black Deaths in Custody was coined by Aboriginal people here to address the same issue. We have, uh, I think that's 437, I think, I think someone said 439 the other day. Um, 437 Aboriginal people have died in custody in Australia at the hands of either correctional services or the police. So we held a solidarity rally for Black Lives Matter and we also held a rally raising the issues of our experience here. I heard someone do the math and say that that works out to one a month. Yes, I think it's over one a month. Yeah. But yeah, it's alarming. It's a lot. That's and, you know, what was really scary was that somebody died on Saturday when we were having a oh, rally. Yes. Oh, unbelievable. So it's just really, it's just, yeah, it's a lot. And, you know, a lot of the families are really feeling it at this time too. The argument around Black Lives Matter reminds me a lot of when people for other groups, oppressed groups, have 
rebuttal. So, for example, feminism and people go, I'm an equalist. And it's like, well, no, feminism exists because women are treated differently. They're oppressed. They're the oppressed group. Or when uh, the LGBT community have pride and they're like, you know, gay pride or LGBT pride. And people go, well, I'm straight and I'm proud. And it's like, well, no, that's because you're allowed. The default is, of course you are. You've got nothing to be, you know, the opposite of pride is shame. So you've got nothing to be shamed over being straight. Yeah. It's the, it's and they the have hetero thing. pride. Yeah, yeah. what? Yeah. Hetero- That's not a thing. Hetero pride. No. Yeah, like people made a hetero hetero parade or something in the US or something. I oh, am God. shrouded in nothing but shame about my heterosexuality. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what does the hetero flag look like. I bet it's so boring. <laughs> oh my God! I don't know. It needs to be burnt. <laughs> yeah, um, cannot be a thing. Yeah, no. And I I've seen like I mean I'm angry about what I've seen online in people who are against Black Lives Matter, which like is just so weird that you could even be that way like it whatever I mean I'm sure you see it a lot more than I do so I don't know why I'm complaining Ricky I'm sorry but I see a lot of people say like white people who are like well this is reverse racism I didn't ask to be born white I can't help that it's like okay so you can see how it feels for once in your life someone calling you like hey you're privileged which is like Not exactly the worst thing you can be called, is it? Like, <laughs> right. and that's the most insulting thing you've heard about yourself is that you've got privilege. And then you yep. get angry because you're like, well, I can't help that. And it's like, well, then can you understand the other side's argument? Yeah, exactly. This just highlights your privilege. Yeah, Shut exactly. up. It's, yeah. it's because there's like, I think people with this power feel like they're losing power when you say black power or black lives matter or you say something and it's usually you know you take something that the dominant society has usually looked down on you from and you turn it into the beacon of your pride so you know black and proud or proud to be aboriginal or i'm proud to be ghanai or gunditjmara often that's been looked down upon or and who i am and you take that and you, you make that into your sense of pride and it really i think for people that are really privileged they seem to feel really offended and they feel like they're losing power because of it. But they're not. Well, they may actually. But when you're saying it, they're not losing power. There's no actual transaction of power at the moment. People are just protesting and standing up as much as they can. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think powerful. you're right about the fear of losing power. Yeah. I think people who are racist are like the reason that they're freaking out is because like, well, you can't say anything anymore. It's like, yeah, for good fucking reason. Yeah. So like... Shut yeah. up. Like, yeah, like the, totally. Do you know what I mean? Like I feel that people are just, they're so worried that their way of life is going to change just by allowing black people to matter. Live, That's all they're live. asking. Like yeah. matter. I to- and I was thinking, you know, of all the media backlash and everything that was copped this week. And I'm just like, I had a moment of yesterday as in like, all we asked for is for us to live, to matter. That's all we asked for. That's it. And that's, that's, that's controversial. Mm. And that is... Like, we've got to do some deep soul-searching around why that's a thing. Yeah, when you break it down to that bare Mm. bones, it's so depressing. Like, I can't – people asking to matter. Like, that that should be the bare Bare minimum minimum. of human decency. People shouldn't just have to matter. They should should be able to thrive and, oh, it's just so – Exactly, and it's another thing. Like, black deaths in custody, police brutality – is just the tip of the iceberg in our experience in living in white Australia, in this society. That doesn't touch on the suicides. That doesn't touch on all the other things. But, you know, we are barely thriving. And when it comes to suicidal, our people 
are killed at the hands of police brutality or um, in the prisons. That's just the experience of our death or the death of Aboriginal people. Yeah, it's not the experience of the life. No. Do you um, know what I couldn't get over is that when they were making the announcements about coronavirus and they were saying that there's people that are at high risk and they would say something like people with respiratory issues, the Australian population, anyone that's over 70, except for the Aboriginal population where it's 50. And everyone just yeah. keeps going, right? Like it's nothing. Like we are yeah. so programmed now that they can tell us that Aboriginal people, their risk is 20 years younger than the rest of the population yeah. Yeah. and everyone just accepts it and keeps going and doesn't even have a moment where they go, hold on, mm. did, they, did they just say that Aboriginal people, that it's 20 years less than the rest of the population? No one pauses. It's just the default, oh, yeah, no, I understand that. That's, that's just the way it is. Mm. It's so unbelievable. And in the health, like, people make a lot of assumptions around that as well. I think the assumption is often Aboriginal people just die and it's something that's our fault or, you know, we just, our bodies are inferior or we can't take care of ourselves better or whatever. There is a lot of more research out there around health institutions and health systems that aren't, aren't adequate enough to not just not adequate enough, but actually a form of racial violence against Aboriginal bodies in Australia. If you look at the example of that Aboriginal woman who went to the St Vincent's Hospital in the emergency ward and she was really sick and vomiting still, they kicked her out of the emergency ward and said that she'd seen and she was just laying outside of the emergency ward sick and vomiting and until another patient found her. This was like last week or something and just got her own blanket and put it on there and like filmed it and was like to the hospital, take her in, she's not well. And the hospital kicked that other woman out. So this <gasps> happened at St. Vincent. So fuck? Yeah. They just, she, there was a woman laying on the pavement, sick on the outside. Like we can't even get health care, health care. We can't even get that. That's not a thing, you know. And there's another example where an Aboriginal man was banging on the window. And I can't remember what state, but... um. An Aboriginal man was banging on the window of a hospital trying to scream for help and it was in a country and they didn't have an emergency ward but it was a health service but it was an urgent matter but the nurses thought he was a violent Aboriginal man so they didn't open the door but he was desperate because his wife was going in the car and she died. Oh my God. And like God. you can't access health systems here. There is a barrier and the barrier doesn't exist because our bodies are inferior. The barrier exists because of racism. Yeah. There are racist citizens don't just live in the police. It lives in the health systems as well. So, yeah, anyway, I mean, that's a tangent, but that's like no, the experience. No. And there's an often, the thinking is, because we die quicker, that it's our own inferior bodies or our own health, that kind of natural selection thinking. But actually, health systems are just as violent as police systems, or can be. Yep. Mm. All right, well, yeah. It's really, just, I'm so sorry, because that's... <laughs> Fucking awful. As we we know, though, like uh, from the weekend, the word sorry is not enough now. Like, I mean, I know we're saying sorry because fuck the guilt we feel. But, you know, I'm so sick of this country. They have that national sorry day. Like, what the fuck? Who cares now? At this point, sorry is a verb. You gotta, you gotta do it. We need action. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's unbelievable. Mary 
Vicky, can we talk about then the police and... Fuck the police. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, just want to say the music on Saturday was the best I've ever seen at a rally. I mean, it was so good. There's like NWA playing. I'm like, we don't get this at any other rally. Do you know what? It would have made any white person feel very inferior because even me for one moment, like I started dancing and I was like... Don't dance, white girl. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't dance here because I don't have to speak. <laughs> so but good. yeah, Sampar and um, Philly. Uh, we, we struck it so lucky having Sampar and Philly and Adrian Eagle come. They're some of the best musicians here in Victoria and even Australia and internationally, Sampar as well. So I just couldn't believe that they wanted to come sing and uh, they're amazing. Yeah, amazing. it was incredible. We've heard a lot of people talk about defund the police and ACAB and it's just a couple bad apples. That's my voice for racist person, by the way. Just, yeah, well, it's just a few bad apples. But why are people saying that there's no good police and what's, what does defunding the police mean and can you talk a bit about that? There's a, there's a lot of questions in there, but if you wish, <laughs> yeah. could you just There talk- is a lot. I mean, it's quite a complex conversation. Well, actually, it's actually not that complex. It's just hard, I think, for people to imagine a new society without policing in our society. And, you know, people have to be proactive in educating themselves on the role the police play in our societies. So ACAB, and you can bleep this part out, part of this word out, but it's an acronym for all cops are bastards. And it's just an age-old, I think it might be an anarchist saying from maybe the UK, and then it's just a slogan that was brought here for ACAB. And, you know, a lot of Aboriginal people, younger Aboriginal people in particular, say the word ACAB. And, yeah, and the gist of it is that defunding the police literally means defunding the police. It doesn't mean defunding a part of it. It doesn't mean reforming it. And I tell you now, I can tell you that Aboriginal people, and I imagine, and and from what I've seen, I'm pretty sure that for African-Americans, that we've seen every aspect of every courtroom had every lawyer you can think of, from the worst lawyer, from the best lawyer, from everything, from any experience. And there is no justice within that system. You can't reform it. You can't reform the police system. If you reform the police system, they just end up getting more money and then they get bigger. So you're just feeding the beast when you say reform it or they need more money or they need to do this, they need to do that. It's not true. They don't need that because if you look at the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Death and Custody, there were a bunch of recommendations that came out of that and largely I haven't implemented many of those recommendations. We have so many committees of Aboriginal people who dedicate their lives to working with police and trying to get police to see the best side of us, to just get every police to understand and now they have like cultural awareness, which I believe is like an hour or less. So they have every opportunity to change, but that doesn't work. So from now, we say reform doesn't work. And it is a huge concept for people to get their heads around, but we actually can live in a society without police, in particular police and systems that hurt people more. And I've seen someone talking online about this concept called transformative justice. And I think it's a good way to talk about it in those terms, you know, And I know in people's heads right now, they're going right to, what about all the murderers? What about all the rapists? Blah, blah, blah. And and, and abolition, and this is an abolitionist kind of framework, it doesn't start with talking about that. It starts talking about the community and the systems that we live in that harms everyday people and to prevent that kind of stuff from happening and prevent the need for prisons as well. But anyway, I think, you know, I saw a good example online what was being talked about in, in terms of how we how we punish, the idea of punishment. For example, kids in school, 
they do something wrong or naughty, then they're um, expelled. But that doesn't really solve the problem, right? It just takes the person away and then it's just like this idea of making people disappear and that they don't exist or they don't matter anymore. That sort of thinking and system is then used as we get older. And I think the idea of transformative justice is that people are not disposable and, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's a complex kind of concept. Is, but Is it more like um, the Scandinavian model where they... Like the Scandinavian model sounds like, like someone that's on the front cover of Vogue, but yeah. yeah. That sounds like a sex worker model that everybody doesn't like. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I, I mean, they've still got punishment and all of that sort of stuff, but like the maximum you could get at all is like 20 years and you live in a house and they sort of reform you and it's all about trying to get you back into living society. a society. Yeah. yeah. No, that's. That doesn't sound, I don't know enough about that, but it's sort of more like communities are resourced to respond to the issues themselves outside of the policing. So we just capacity build community to address their own issues, like family violence, like people get education on all of those different issues that we might have in society. For example, I did a course, Alternatives to Going Triple Zero. And these people from the US, they were really cool. They did research in their local area on the top three reasons why People call the police in their area. And then they decided to organise around those three issues. They said that these are the issues that our community needed the most outside of the racist system. So we're going to do the best in our community to make sure everybody's informed on this issue and that they know what to do as an alternative to calling the police. And, you know, it can be as simple as that, not needing the police for those issues. And then people have the opportunity to participate in their own community and to be more involved in their own communities. I don't know if that's making sense. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. that does make sense. Well, totally. particularly like mental health. That's um, the thing. Like mm. you have to call the police sometimes. Yeah, but, well, yeah. And then, you know, people get locked up even though that's not the right place for them to be. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing. Like people are saying divest from the police into appropriate health services, divest from the police into really good top state-of-the-art school systems, divest from the police systems into a better community. I think I do understand why people are like, but how would we live without police? But that's just looking at it from how we live now. And also yeah. the people that often are saying it are not people that are having like fa- – they're not even, even dealing fam- with the police. Family <laughs> members die in custody. No, yeah, that's like, it. I mean, I don't know how it would feel being a black person and if something happens to you, you don't even want to call the police because you're like, well, I'm likely to get in more trouble or get killed from calling the police to and, this. And let's not pretend like the system – actually always helps people that need it. Like if, you know, how many people have gone and reported their rape and then the police have said, you know, sorry, we can't pursue this or, yeah. Exactly. When you have a break-in, what do the police do? They just make the insurance report. Yeah. Yeah. They just say, sorry, there's nothing we can do. We don't know who did this. You know, um, I know people that have had cars stolen and – they don't, the kit cops don't often find it. So I remember I, when before I understood any of this, I remember calling the cops for a family violence situation. And it wasn't for me personally, but it was for somebody I was close to. And I wanted the cops to help get the child out of the house because I was worried about the child and the mother couldn't be there. And the cop turned around and said, why does the mum keep going back? What? And, I was, and they didn't help me because, because I didn't have a right to take that child out of that house because that, that child was the perpetrator's kid and and I just said to the cops in your whole life and your experience has saying why doesn't she just leave ever ever worked no so stop saying it so shut the fuck up stop saying it and then nothing happened the child was traumatized they didn't help 
So yeah. people have to understand that they actually don't do much. Like we treat them like society is like, well, yeah, call the police, but they're also not trained to handle every situation. So why would we no. call them anyway? And we've got to stop. I think there can't be, it's just lazy to just say, we'll give more money to policing to address family violence. I think we can do better mm. and I think we can prevent it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. The one time that I've called triple zero was for a mental health thing for someone that I love. Like I was so naive. I thought that if you called triple zero, there was a team that came out for mental health. I had no idea that oh, police yeah. turn up. Mental health force the five, per- they all come out, yeah. they unite their rings. and they- I didn't know, which, you know, probably also shows my privilege that I don't know much about the system like that. But I called triple zero and then they sent eight police for one person with a mental health issue. And then Mm-mm. they sent um, paramedics. And the people that, you know, de-escalated the situation were the two paramedics that turned up. But there were still eight police there and they still decided to handcuff the person. Yeah. And oh, I, wow. And That's I've, terrible. Yeah. And I've still, I still feel really bad about it because it felt so dehumanising or something. Yeah, but also it's like it's like what are you supposed to do in that situation? Because you can't handle it yourself. You yeah. need someone there, but it's exactly. like I, I don't do know that the my... police are the best person. But who the hell hell else am I supposed to call at this time on a Saturday? Yeah, exactly. And that's the issue. You know, is why don't we know what is out there? Why don't we have the capacity to respond to these things that happened in our lives? And it always almost happens. Um, and that's it. That's a part of abolition is educating people on how to respond to these things rather than it just be that, you know, we don't get taught in school on how to help someone in this situation or how to do something, how to be a responder. Mm -hmm. We just don't know. We just call the cops. That's part of the issue. Yeah. Yeah. Another issue, another example, um, we, I found, we found someone that we knew on the street and they were in a really bad situation. I think they'd like, they'd taken a substance and maybe it didn't go that well or or whatever. I'm not sure what the, what the, Specifics were, but we called the ambulance thinking we were a bit worried about their health. And we got them inside and, you know, sort them out and all that. And then we ended up getting onto their family member and they said, no, 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 don't worry about it. We'll come and get them. They should be fine. So we cancelled the ambulance and then the ambulance alerted the police. And then the police came into our house and we were like, we don't want you here. And if they wake up and see you here, you're going to make the situation worse. You need to leave now. But they're like, oh, we're just here to do a welfare check. And we're like, we want you out of our house. We don't want you in our house. You're going to make things worse. Can you please leave? All we wanted was a health response. You know, those situations can turn very quickly for us particularly. And I can imagine that it's really frightening. I know, Mariki, we were at a party together. This was like a 30th birthday party or whatever and had a noise complaint and the cops turned up at the door and there was quite a few Aboriginal people at the party. And I just take it for granted, like, when there's a noise complaint and the police turn up, me as a white woman, I'm like, oh, yeah, I just go to the door. I'm like, yeah, turn it, we'll turn it down sort of thing. But I totally underestimated what that does to Aboriginal people that were there having a good time. And then all of a sudden the police are there. Like, it really changed. It, there's a shift. And it, and it, I totally, I totally yeah, don't realise that me just existing amongst some loud music <laughs> is so different yeah. to an Aboriginal person. Yeah, no, it's, of mm. course. Like, I, you don't – yeah, there's a serious issue with policing. And, you know, we all, we're also diverse as well. Like, you know, we don't speak for all Aboriginal people in the way that we approach policing, but this is what we think will work as well, that – 
the abolition of police and the abolitionist framework as well. You know, really, it's got to stop. So, yeah, you're right. It, it does change things for Aboriginal people. Why does protesting and rallying, why is it important? And does it actually work? That's a really good question. Look, I think it depends who you talk to on whether it works or not. So protesting is not the answer. It's a tactic for the longer road. And it's how you utilise and how you protest and, you know, how that tactic fits in within the grander scheme of what the goal is. We actually, it it was a show of solidarity and to, you know, assert our demands that we were asking for. People protest politicians. People protest for many different reasons. And it's hard to say if it works because it doesn't address the issue, but it's a tactic in the grander scheme of things. And it's a show that you've got support and solidarity and that there's a movement. And if you're really good and organised, you can harness that movement into action and for greater change. And I think it's the action after it or around it that often is the answer to what you're looking for. But realistically, it is a tactic and kind of how long the piece of string. But it is really important to go out and show solidarity with people. It's important to get out in the streets and do that physical and public show to show who's here to support, even if it's yourself. I think protesting is still really important. And I remember protesting deaths in custody a year ago with like 20 people and it was around Christmas time with those placards. Yes, yes. And people were just looking at us in disgust. Then, you know, fast forward to the weekend and it was, someone said 250,000. I don't know how many were there. But I think it's always important to keep showing out and um, building the support and building the structures because it, it puts the issue into public domain and you also find your supporters and the people that you can work with. Well, I mean, it has, it, I mean, this time it has created change, at least in Minneapolis, because the four police officers have been arrested and charged, but mm. also. They Absolutely. are working towards um, they reform, reforming they, their, their police, system yeah. and defunding the police. And, I mean, that happened because of the protests. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like there is a, a shift. I mean, I, that's coming from me. I mean, do you feel that it's different this time? I think so. For me, I think that the only reason why those changes happened was because of the riots. And they happened on a sustained larger level. It was civil unrest. And rioting, from what I understand of riots, that it it can bring governments to their knees. And if you can, you know, economically shut down a precinct or you you do that civil unrest and where it's action, and unfortunately with rioting is, is a riot. And it's unpretty and it can be violent and it is a form of violence. And there's a lot of discussion within our communities and external as to where the violence is the answer. And violence is never the answer, but what we experience is not non-violent and our opponent doesn't have a conscience. So sometimes you just have to have an uprising of civil unrest in order for you to be taken serious. And in that context, I believe that that's the reason why the people of Minneapolis got a response. And I think it's a good response, but we'll see because defunding the police, I think they still intend to replace it with a type of community policing and not system transformation where people are safe from from harm, from system harm. So that will be interesting to see come out. But yeah, you're right, it did work. And But for us, for example, like I don't... For me, I, I think I don't think Dan Andrews is quite serious. For our community and in our Aboriginal community, a lot more people have stood up. A lot of our community members, a lot of our elders are really engaged, are really passionate about this issue. And for us, that means it worked. 
but more broadly in a society and system oppression, it's going to probably take a bit more than a protest to really get the same kind of changes they got in Minneapolis. And I know that's going to sound really controversial, but it actually, if we look at it for what it is, I think it works, yeah. Mm. I thought it was really interesting on the weekend. For Aboriginal people, there's a real connection to country. Mm. And that was the thing that I probably didn't think about before I went. Um, I sort of looked to America and the rioting and stuff there. And then we turned up on the weekend and there was lots of calls by Aboriginal people that were leading it to stop and connect with country. And they were were pretty much saying, clean up after yourself and don't don't hurt It was like respect the land and the elders have given us permission to be here. And so like be respectful, spiritual connection to the land. There is riots here mm. though. Like... You know, and I think that's a political difference more than it being about us being Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. I think, like, if you look at the Palm Island riots, and that happened in response to a death in custody, and I don't know if you're familiar with that case, but there's a really good book called Tall Man, and I really urge anyone to read or watch the documentary to really understand what happened there. But there was a, there was a riot, mm. and they called that. Well, I mean, we can call it uprising. Lex Wooten, he was. Um, charged and I think he was put in prison and then he got a really good legal team to get him back out and they had a huge civil case against the Queensland government and the Palm Island community were compensated for what the Queensland government had done and they apologised. No other community has ever experienced or received that yeah. kind of um, that kind of justice, even though I feel there there is no justice because that man was never... The man that killed Mr. Jumaji is still free. So that's not justice in that sense, but in the sense of civil justice, mm. that that community were compensated for what the police did to them. And yeah. they got that. And I'm a firm believer they got that because of the riot. Um, there was an uprising. The young people in Kalgoorlie after, I think it was Elijah Doherty's death. So it happens here that it just doesn't get the same attention. Yeah, right. But there's uprisings in prisons as well for the treatment of all people in prison. So... People right here, definitely. I mean, hello, Sovereign Hill is built around yeah, a white exactly. people riot, yeah. and um, yeah. and that sometimes uh, it's a bit frustrating to see lots of white people. Why? Why do you have to be burning things? It's like, well, I don't know if equation. Yeah, exactly. And and buildings burning compared to black people dying, but also you totally forget your own history. Yeah. My my own family were part of the Eureka Stockade here in um, Victoria and they changed things. There was murders in that and yeah. they burnt buildings and, yeah. and then we kind of celebrate it. There's a whole place that exactly. we go to and we watch yeah. it and we watch it reenacted and we cheer. It's so yeah. weird that you totally. can't see that as the same thing totally and, and it is scary but people you know, I was watching people saying but what about Target I was like Target is a multi-billion dollar company that doesn't give a flying F about black people or the working class so let's just start there yeah like exactly they, that's totally justice yeah and um, I think even when they say looting and stuff like that I mean that's just the framing of conservatives as well from my perspective and I've got quite radical politics around this I think looting is uh, particularly big department stores of, of multinational co- corporations. I think that's wealth distribution of people that have been effed over for so long by the class inequality. So, you know, there's so many different arguments in the way that you can frame it. And I think it's the people taking back power and we can critique the violence of it. We can say, but what about that Mercedes that got smashed up or the bank's poor windows? Like, no, who cares? And then 
they'll flip this, the framing to say, oh, but these poor families lost restaurants and black people are not the looters, it's the white people. And I think there was some of that. But actually, there were black people with agency that knew what they were doing too. You know, that's a community rising up against the system of oppression that's taken them down and killed their family and oppressed them for so long. And that's taking back power. That's their rise up. And when you're powerless, and I'm totally for that. I support the agency and the autonomy of communities that rise up against system of oppression in that way. And I would never, ever peace police them. I had so many interviews for people wanting me to um, reassure them that, that, that we're not going to be violent. And I kept turning the question back around to say, I stand in solidarity with the freedom fighters of the US right now. And I would never undermine their form of rise up against system of oppression. So that's just, I do, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not undermining them and I'm not going to peace police them and I'm not throwing them under the bus to make myself look like I'm coming from a better moral high ground because do you know what? In my opinion, I'm tired of protesting in the way that we have. I think that we need greater change. I don't know if I could ever start my own riot, but I think things need to change. I'll join in now. I'll throw the first break. (laughs) I think though it's been like, I mean, the reason why it's been such a huge riot right now is not only because of like the horrific footage and how angry everyone is, but a lot of people don't have jobs because yeah, of coronavirus. coronavirus. So really? they yeah. like exactly. people are like taking shifts. They're like, okay, well, I'll do the daytime. You do the nighttime. We'll just have people <laughs> up all the time because it's kind of become a full time job for them. Well, and also coronavirus is yeah, yeah, exactly. Such is the racial discrimination. Um, coronavirus has affected the black communities far more than it has the white communities. I mean, they're dying at higher rates. One over yep. in the US, they're losing but their jobs. They're losing their jobs. They're the front line workers yeah. they're so much more vulnerable so of course of mm. course of course but isn't it like it's it's so ridiculous that only a few weeks earlier we had white people protesting because they wanted to open up the country and they felt so fucking justified in that and yet when people are protesting over black lives being killed by police people are like mm. well this is ridiculous that's I- what happened here too um yeah the, the newspapers. Scott Morrison said that he respects the it's a free country when um, the 5G people were pre- protesting because <gasps> the, the, the conspiracy was that um, coronavirus is coming from 5G. Yeah, and, and that Bill Gates was is like, in charge of it. Which, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and there was like 5,000 people that I think protested in Melbourne or 3,000 and there was not a peak. And this is in the peak of... Our restrictions. Yeah, well, I put up on my Instagram stories. I don't know if you saw Mariki. I tagged you in it. The beautiful Harold Sun, who we love so dearly, and I say that with all sarcasm, um, put up a photo of Mariki and Tarnine, who organised uh, Black Lives Matter rallies we, under COVIDiots. Yeah, right? they had the heading yeah. COVIDiots. And then they went on to say how it was so irresponsible and everything. The very next day, it had the front page and it said, Open up! Oh bloody! Let the AFL. Yeah, they fans want the want AFL to come in. <laughs> there was they were appealing to open up sport because they're sick of missing out on AFL. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> See, it's just. I had to, like, the amount of people that were like, I couldn't possibly go to the rally because I'm too scared for coronavirus. And I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. Like, that is fair enough. I understand. But why the fuck are you going to the shops then? Why are you going to Ikea? Why are you heading to the shops? Like, if you're you're that scared of it. And to be honest, I actually felt so much safer at the rally because not only was everyone taking it incredibly seriously and being very careful, 
but yeah. you're not touching the same things. Like when I go to the shops, I'm touching doors, I'm touching True. products. There's a yeah. lot more interaction with different people. I'm handing over my bank card. Like there is a lot more that's going on. Whereas that's so true. at the yeah. march, I'm keeping to myself. I didn't touch a single person. Yeah. There was enough space, but it's just so fucked up that the media just is like, oh, you know, you have no respect. You know, we're trying to keep the coronavirus cases down in this country and you don't care. And it's like, well, actually, you don't care because black people are dying at the hands of fucking police and you really don't give a shit about it. I think that um, I would say to people that have never been to a protest and are maybe on the cusp and thinking about, say, January 26th or something like that going to one, I'd really love for people to go and just experience it because it's a real awakening when you go and then you see how the media report on the thing that you went to because you're like, yeah. wait, hold on, am I, what is going oh, on? I must it, have it, been, been at that part. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's reality. exactly. I think the other thing is it's, it's almost like a remembrance as well. On the weekend, it wasn't just about protesting. It was about how we have Remembrance Day for Fallen fallen Soldiers and we have Anzac Day yeah. and all those days. Like It yeah. is something like that as well. It's going there. It's a sombre mood. It is, yeah. it is. It's Mariki, yeah. I have another question though about Australia or so-called yeah. Australia. I think that I find really confusing about everything is that why do you think Australia seems to listen when things happen overseas, but not when it's happening in Australia? For example, the American police do something bad, like then Australia catches oh, on, even though go, they, they say, oh, thank yeah. God we're not America. Or even yeah. like Kaepernick, like everyone seems to look over to Kaepernick kneeling, but then everyone thinks that Adam Goods is yeah. some yeah, anomaly. Like, what yeah. Is, yeah, what is that? Why? Uh, look, I don't know. I think there's a few different things going there. I think it's like American imperialism. So they're the cultural, like the modern cultural hub and people get a lot of their media in whatever form it comes from, from the US. But um, there's that and we're far more aware of what's going on in the US because of that. But there's also, I think, people can't relate the issue to themselves back home. And I think when the Black Lives Matter thing first came up, people were like, oh, my God, it's so bad. Racism. And then I think we were able to switch the conversation <laughs> like, around pretty quickly to say, actually, this happens here. Yeah. Right in your backyard. With these people. So mm. don't do that. Don't. There's often a, um, sometimes a bit of frustration when people, it's okay to point out the similarities. But there are like, and there are commonalities that are important to 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 point out. You know, I think it's important to have those discussions, but that also stark differences and can be a point of frustration when people talk about racism in the context in the American context. It's very different to racism here and how it's experienced. And I think you've got to contextualise how racism is experienced in your local area. And and I had people from the UK even contacting me saying how frustrating it was. Like black people in the UK saying, you know, we've been talking about death at the hands of racist policing and systems for so long and then people just want to go out and protest because of what's going on in the US. And rightly so, that's why we stood in solidarity and I I stand with everyone in the US fighting for their freedom, no unreservedly. Um, but, you know, I understood... Yeah, in the UK that it was the same thing, that people could name five people that died in the US at the hands of racist policing but couldn't do the same in the UK. And, they, you know, and I thought it was really interesting how they reached out and 
and told me that there was a similar frustration, that people need to contextualise it here as well. How is it different? Yeah. How is racism different for Aboriginal people than... Um, so, like, I think it's kind of... That's a very hard question to answer. It's complex to talk about and understand, but I think it's how the system targets people and the experience they have and how, how racism is formed in that country. You know, the history... And um, what we refer to as black, you know, there were times when people said that we weren't black and um, especially in the global movement against um, uh, white supremacy. And, you know, and if you don't understand Australian po- politics that happen here, then, yeah, you wouldn't know that. So it is different. And I don't know exactly how it's different because I'm not an expert in how it's experienced in the US, but it's definitely the same in the way that we're murdered by the system and how racism targets us. But it's different in that, Australia wasn't built on slavery from the transatlantic slave trade from people that came that was stolen from Africa and that came here. Australia was built on the slavery of Aboriginal people and also black burning. So they went to the Pacific Islands and stole black people, particularly I think the Solomon Islands and other islands, particularly Queensland actually, was built on the slavery of surrounding um, Pacific Islanders and Aboriginal people. So it's a different kind of history and and everywhere is unique in how the racism targets and the racism exists. So the way that I would encourage people to understand that is learn your history mm. um, and listen to what the local scholars are saying about racism rather than, you know, and I think it's important to understand the international context to stay engaged in what's happening in the US and stand in solidarity because a strong moment that, you know, we need to turn into a movement. So we need to stay engaged. But I think now is the time to um, educate yourself on what's happening here in Australia. I encourage people to read the writing of Aileen Morton Robinson and Dr Chelsea Bond and other Aboriginal scholars and academics here that talk about race politics. Yeah, um, I didn't realise how much I didn't know about Australia's history I, until I went to university and teachers started. Like, I didn't, I didn't even know the term terra nullius. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that until I was like 21 and that's when my eyes were open and I realised like, holy shit, we have completely destroyed this like a- Aboriginal people. Like we've taken so much and I didn't realise that uh, until yeah. that age and I think like it's, it's fucked up because we actively ignore the history and that's what makes people prejudiced to fucking begin with. I mean, yeah, totally. I didn't, I got so angry when I found out and, and then I just sort of like, it's hard. You also realise that you've willingly or unwillingly participated yes, in it is the it. other thing. It's yeah. like, well, hold on, because you haven't taught me the right thing and because people have been active in my life that have been racist, you've then put me, you've roped me into this. Yeah. You've roped me into being racist myself. And it's really fucking confronting when you finally realise that you've participated yeah. in a in a system that does oppress people and is awful to people. Because like, the way, oh, yeah, the way yeah. I had been taught was oh, you know, we, we came here and then the Aboriginal people were like, oh, hey, what's up? And like we fought for a little bit, but then we all decided that we'd get along and like play happy families. Oh, and it was good for the Aboriginal Yeah, it was people. good for them, we, right? We like, brought them... But then what? that, you it know... Yeah, yeah, like terra nullius. And it, it's like you're playing Yahtzee and then someone comes along and says, no, sorry, you're not playing the rules. And it's like, yeah, but you're playing Monopoly. We're playing Yahtzee over here. And then they're like, no, nah, and just put the Monopoly board on top of your, your Yahtzee. And then they're like, that's it. That's how we play <laughs> from now know. on. It's quiet. 
<laughs> that but simple no, I know, but I mean, mean like, <laughs> like, I didn't realise that, you know, we just completely imposed everything and stole everything and, like, I didn't know. And, and then gaslit them to think that, And it's just fucked up yeah. that, like, I didn't know that in the own country that I fucking live in and that Aboriginal people are, like, refugees in their own country because we've taken your homeland and then made you feel like you don't belong here. Like, it's just fucked up. And it's funny because that's not my experience. I've known from a young childhood, I, I just knew forever that that was the case. And it, I never had a moment where I was like, oh, my God, this is what happened. I thought I came from a family that was like, about this all the time. And I didn't have the opportunity of a childhood without that kind of thinking and and I remember doing Australian history in school and I was like oh my god yes I finally get to learn more about this I remember like to the teacher I remember saying to the teacher hang on a minute you skipped a bit we (laughs) talked about the the white settlers that were doing poems and now we're skipping to something else I was like there's more here I know and he was like, oh, well, no, we're just going to learn about this. And then I just remember my, immediately my brain was like, King, I don't care about this anymore. And I just did not give a fuck about that class. Anymore. I never went. And I didn't, I didn't put two and two together, but I just remember being disengaging immediately when I realized there was not, it wasn't a true reflection. So weird. My history was we came, there was the Eureka Stockade. There was a guy called Banjo Patterson. Then there were a couple of world wars that we participated in that was and now we're here today (laughs) now it's us yeah that's it and now we're here yeah a lot of people that follow me online are parents and lots of people coming at me saying I just don't know I don't think it's appropriate to talk to my kids about it blah 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 blah. but like you just said Mariki black kids don't have the option of not Mm. talking about it the system inflicts it from a young age yeah I was looking at someone the other day talking about when they were a kid they remember going into shops and every time that they would go into a shop they would be followed around by the security guards like young black kids don't have the option of just having the conversation over dinner like white kids and that's why parents of white kids need to not just white kids anyone that's not aboriginal at this point need to be having this conversation at such a young age and it just the conversation needs to keep happening Totally agree, yes. Difficult, yeah, but I agree, yep. Mariki, you've talked so much. And yeah, I We're know. <laughs> so, so grateful and I completely understand that um, this is not easy to just be constantly asked, oh, could you come on our podcast and talk about the ways in which your people are being killed and oppressed? Like it's, it's, really, it's really shit and really hard and I'm sorry that you constantly have to keep doing this. But I just want to say that I'm really, really grateful. Before we end this chat, the very last thing, and this is probably the most (laughs) annoying thing I'm going to ask you, but what can white people do? I think white people can do a lot. I think that you've got to think about there's got to be substantial reparations for Aboriginal people and we've got to come together and think about what that means for us. I think white people can educate yourselves and read the works of other Aboriginal people and consider, you know, what it means to live in a, in a system that perpetuates extreme racism against Aboriginal people and is that something that you want to be a part of and really analyse and, and um, to interrogate that idea. There's a movement recently, I suppose it's not <coughs> not so recent, but it's really come to the front called Paying the Rent. Would you be able to explain? Oh, yes, that? Paying the Rent. I forgot about Paying the Rent. <laughs> I guess that's um, an initi- a grassroots initiative that came up that um, that um, it came from community 
Oh, and it's like an old concept that um, Uncle Robbie Thorpe um, has carried for a really long time, but I think it came from Uncle Bruce McGuinness. He's one of the most respected men in our community. He's no longer with us. Um, and it's the concept of um, of paying the rent. So it's not charity. It's it's just like this equal transaction of for you being here and what's been taken for us. So then there's, that, there's a transaction and that rent goes directly to community and we get to do with whatever with those funds that we that we want to so there's a funeral fund there's many different avenues for us to use about paying the rent to benefit our people outside of the dictation of government um, so that's pretty good um, and I encourage everybody to look up pay the rent online and on social media to read a bit more about it so yeah paying the rent I think that's really important and it's a great initiative like I know all the people that are involved um, are really strong, solid community members that really care about how that gets to, how that's distributed to community on the ground. And for me personally, I think one of the saddest things for us is that Aboriginal people don't have money to bury people. And it's really upsetting when we see a GoFundMe um, going around to bury our mob. So that's something that I really believe in is the funeral fund component. But there's also Grandmothers Against Removals, and that's to help Aboriginal grandmothers to stop Aboriginal kids from being stolen and they've been really successful and really good um, so that's some, where some of the funds go and there's a potential for some of the funds to go to, to do campaigning and advocacy as well on these issues so support pay the rent if you can and make regular comp- contributions. Mm. Yeah that's a great idea. Yeah. And um, turn up to your rallies. Yeah. Oh yes and turn up to the rallies and support us. Yeah. You can follow Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance on social media and that's where you'll find most of the information on what we're doing and um, our protests. So, yeah, follow us on Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance um, and War Revolt on Instagram. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll put, put all, all of this in the show notes. notes. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you Appreciate so much. You. You're amazing. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say? No, you're amazing. So thank you for having me, Annie. And it's been a real honour. So oh. I accepted to come on because I've always thought you're amazing and I love your work too. So <laughs> thanks for having me. Babe, I just put up pictures of dogs with rainbow hair and then I'm like, <laughs> I, I feel very so. inadequate when I'm looking I mean, over. No, no, I'm not here for that negative mm. self-talk. Thank you, Mariki. I, I appreciate odd. that. It's like yeah. I'm constantly trying to big her up. We've got to stop doing that. Yeah. As women, we do that. I feel very honoured to have grown up on Gundijamara country where oh. you did. And honestly, I know it sounds so silly, but I just feel so grateful when I was looking at you up there on the weekend and just to think that like, I'm within your vicinity. I know that's so silly, but it's like you're so, so powerful and you are just amazing what you do for Mm. your community and then for all the rest of us that are lucky enough to be living on this land. Like, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Annie and Bianca. Thank you. Have a good day, darling. No worries. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.